Our first reading is from Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. In you the orphans find mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. Welcome again to Church of the Cross. One of my favorite songs is by the singer Rich Mullins, who passed away some 20 years ago. In the song, Hold Me, Jesus, Mullins sings this one line that goes, spoken to God, I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. It's stuck with me, that line. It's an honest confession. It's a confession that something is disordered. Something's not wired correctly. It's a confession that the division we just heard read, Jesus talking about, runs through our own hearts. We choose against ourselves. We're inwardly bent, such that we have this profound capacity for self-sabotage, self-destruction. I was watching old sports highlights the other day, and there was a the retelling of Phil Mickelson at the PGA Championship, where he had just one hole. He had to get par on the last hole, and he would win the whole thing. And instead, he took a risk, and it totally backfired on him, and he double bogeyed. He lost the tournament. And in this remarkably honest press conference, he said, I don't know what to say. I'm just an idiot. And there's this remarkable moment of confession, of I did something I can't explain. I sabotaged myself. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. In the language of Hosea in our text this morning, we might say we're unable to return, even if we know we should, even if we'd like to. Today is the final sermon in our series on Hosea. Through the past weeks and months, we've journeyed through this severe and moving book of prophecy. And from Hosea's challenging and symbolic marriage through to the moving heights of chapter 11, describing God's love, one particular message has come to the forefront. The call, the call to God's people, to the people of Israel, to return. Return and wait for the Lord. This was, of course, the message we looked at last week in Hosea chapter 12, this call to turn from reliance upon powers, Assyria and Egypt, 
the management of those alliances, and to turn back to trust in and waiting upon God. We actually have a, a slide of a map of the time in which Hosea was living, and it captures something of what he was uh, addressing. You can see Israel and Judah, the situation they find themselves, two small nations in the midst of these greater powers, under real threat, experiencing real insecurity. You can see why they might seek a way to maintain control, to make themselves safe, why they may have been tempted away from trust in the Lord their God. We can understand it, perhaps we can identify with it. But even so, even with this temptation as a message of love and grace, the call comes to God's people, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord your God, the one who can and does save, not like these other powers. You can hear Hosea almost. This, this is the way to flourishing, to abundant life, the life you long for. This is the way to protection and security. But I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. We would, wouldn't we? We do, don't we? Knowing that, knowing the divided quality of our hearts, what hope have we of returning? What hope have we when we're so prone to wander, when we're unable to receive the gift of what we need? How can we hope to return in our sin-sick, inwardly bent condition? It's to this profound problem, this very real question, that our reading this morning from Hosea 14 speaks. It speaks a word of hope and life to us who know we don't have what it takes to wait for the Lord to return to Him. It speaks a word of promise, of healing, of hope, the hope of a future. But we, before we move on to that good word, before we answer that question, how, how can we hope to return, I'd like to spend a little bit of time describing what it might mean to return, what it means according to this text, and even a little bit in our context to return to the Lord. What does returning look like for us as the church, as a church, as the people of God today? So we're going to answer, look at the question of what does it mean to return and then come to the question of how is it we can hope to return. As we jump into those, let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, thank you for the text of Hosea and the gift of your spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit inspired Hosea so many years ago in the writing of these words. And we ask now that that same spirit would be present to us and make these words alive and vital to us in a new and fresh way. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Upon hearing the call to return... We might be tempted to think of this as a call to a particular place or a, a specific period of time, right? As a call to return to a geographical location. You think of the old TV series Lost where Jack says, we need to go back, back to the island, back to this specific place. And indeed, in the Christian tradition, there is an allowance, there's an acknowledgement of holy places. It's there in the Old Testament, the, the place of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the Hill of Zion. And in Christian tradition, think of the Celtic spiritual tradition, the language of thin places, these places where 
the Lord seems to meet his people in specific ways where the boundary between heaven and earth is thinner. We have this example, these examples. However, the fact that this call to return to the Lord is one that comes to the people of God while they're in the promised land. And that this call to return extends beyond Hosea and even past Israel's return to exile. Even when they come back from exile, they're still called, they're still challenged to return. It suggests that a specific place is not what needs to be returned to. It's not a specific place. What about a period of time? For some of us in Texas, perhaps coming from a Christian background and experience of the church, when we hear the call, the phrase, return to the Lord, we might associate that with this longing for what might be called the good old days. We might map on the call to return to the Lord, a call to return to a a simpler time, a time of clearer social mores and expectations, clearer convictions even. Comedian Lewis Black, whose persona is that of a grumpy curmudgeon, has this bit where he expresses a longing for the simpler times when he was a child. And he asked his audience, he asked them, simple question, is milk good or bad for you? And everyone hesitates. There's no clear response. And he cries, slamming the table. He says, exactly. When I was younger, milk was good for you, and we knew it. There's this hunger for this simpler more clarified time. When we hear return to the Lord, we might hear that same call. And there's some of us who'd like that, right? There's something of decades ago, perhaps, the faith of our childhoods, what the church and culture looked like previously, that's inviting. There's something there worth preserving, we would say. But for others, the, the language of such a return is not attractive. If the return is to this kind of golden age, we're not sure we want it. Or perhaps we're not even sure that we would belong. We don't fit the Aussie and Harriet mold that seems to connote. That's a really dated reference. (laughs) For many of us, we might understand ourselves in terms of faith, having graduated, outgrown simpler, inadequate answers. The answers of yesteryear are inadequate to the problems of today. We've moved on. We're oriented forward. The language of return we find in Hosea and elsewhere in Scripture is not fundamentally about getting back to a particular moment in time or a golden age. As we've quoted many times, the great Anglican missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin points out that the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, confronts, challenges, interrogates every human culture. We might say, challenges at every moment of human history, every culture. So small town Texas of the 1950s, the the churches that might be a part of our youth, the culture of 21st century Northeast Austin, all have components that the living God, the gospel, might celebrate and affirm, and also have deep areas where there is a clash, a confrontation. You see, even if we could get In the DeLorean with Marty McFly and Doc Brown, there's no perfect moment in time to which we are called to return. And this is actually very good news. Because it means that at any time in history, at any moment in our lives, we might yet return. It's not 
too late. This week I was reading in the Wall Street Journal about Ethiopian Air Flight 302 that crashed tragically in March of 2019, and the flight recorder information is now available, so various people are able to reconstruct what took place in the cockpit. And reading the journal's article, they recount the minutes before the crash, and there comes a moment several minutes into the flight where both the pilot and co-pilot simultaneously understand, recognize the issue, the malfunction that is taking place but it was too late. We have a sense, perhaps, that we've missed our chance, that if only we could go back, if only we could rewind the tape of our lives, or if only we were born in another era and epoch. But the word of the Lord is that it's not too late. You have not missed your chance. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, Now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Today, here and now, God's people might return. So the call to return is not fundamentally about a period of time or a specific place. I think we might understand it better as a posture. Look with me at verses 1 to 3 and the description and instruction given there to God's people. You have stumbled, is the description. And then the instruction, take with you your words, return to the Lord, say to him, take away our iniquity, accept us, receive us. We'll no longer look to Assyria to save us, we'll no longer worship the things we have made. This is language that is fundamentally about posture, about trust, about entrusting themselves to the Lord and not entrusting themselves to those things that cannot save. It suggests a posture of dependence and humility. The last line of verse 3 declares, In you the orphan finds mercy. In the ancient Near East, in the time of Hosea, there was no one more dependent, more in need, than the orphan. The orphan was cut off from relationship, was cut off from support. The call is to return to the Lord. The termination point of this journey is himself the one upon whom we can depend. There's a a physicality to this language. If I were to model this posture, the posture of return, it would be this. It would be kneeling. Arms outstretched, plaintive, the desire to be taken in, an expression of need. I know the way we worship makes kneeling difficult. The rows are often too close. The, The floor is very hard. But there's something so very powerful about this posture for us. Adopting this posture is a recognition of reality, the truth of our need. I have to stand up to see my notes. The great reformer Martin Luther on his deathbed scrawled, we are all beggars, and that is the truth. Kneeling is the embodiment of that reality, kneeling before the Lord. The call to return to the Lord is a call to adopt this kind of posture toward him. Posture of dependence and humility. It's a call to see ourselves as we are in need, inwardly bent, having stumbled in selfishness and sin. This is a reality that can be so very difficult to see. So much around us in our world, so much of how we live our lives obscures this reality. 
We're rarely in a situation where we do not have some mastery, some control, some sense of being able to take care of ourselves. We're so very sophisticated in our means of hiding this reality from ourselves. So sometimes it takes a bracing word like the words of Hosea or the words of Jesus in our gospel reading this morning to help us hear and to hear the call to return. Not to a specific place, not to a specific point in time, but to return to this posture before the one who can and does lift us, who saves us, who has mercy. Many scholars have noticed in this language, in these first verses, verses 1 to 3, in this language of returning, they've noticed a certain kind of script. There's something liturgical or confessional about it. Go and say this specific thing. It's a people who find it hard to return, difficult to recognize our dependence and humility. We need scripts. We need forms to help us adopt this posture. I remember as a teenager, I was a counselor at a children's camp, and some of my campers in different years suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome. And they were delightful children, but they required very specific instruction. I would have to say, go to the bathroom. And I would go with them to the bathroom, and then I would say, now wash your hands. And I would say, go to the dining hall line, and they would go to the dining hall line, and then I would say, okay, now we're going in. And I had to give single verb instructions, very clear scripts for them to follow. God has given us scripts and forms that help us to adopt this posture, this posture that comes foreign to us, scripts that help us realize, acknowledge, and embody our dependence. We need help seeing reality, adopting the appropriate posture. We need help in, the, in forms in our returning. We need confessional words like we pray every week. We need reminders perhaps to kneel in our Sunday best. We need opportunities to confess and pray again and again. Forms that lead us to Scripture to receive it as God's life-giving word on which we depend morning and night, midday too, and just before bed. It's not that these actions, forms, these scripts are magical or that they in and of themselves constitute returning, but they're helps, helps that shape us in this posture of dependence before the Lord that can help us today to return. We never graduate from our need for these kind of forms and scripts. We need their help because our hearts are prone to wander. We'd rather fight for what we don't really want than take what is given. I wonder today, at the start of a new school year, if there might be specific practices and forms that the Holy Spirit would be calling you, you and me, to take up as an embodiment of our dependence, our returning to, our waiting upon him. Practices that might allow us to adopt this life-giving posture before God and from it flourish and bless others in his name. We never graduate from our need for them. If there's one practice above all else that cultivates this posture, it is, of course, prayer. I think of my in-laws my in-laws pray at the drop of a hat. Situations that I think, well, we can figure this out on our own. They are quick to pray. And there's something of the recognition of dependence in that action, 
of a life lived before a God who sees, who answers, who takes care. So returning not to a period of time or a specific place, but to this posture. However, the language of return there is important. And I think particularly important for us at this moment in time in our context. The language of return captures something we must not forget. That Israel's God, Yahweh, the creator of all things, is the goal of Hosea's call, means that in some way, even if it's for the first time, for the person who's never heard of him, the word return is appropriate. Because this Lord is the ground of all being, the father of all creation, the one for whom we were made, for whom our hearts long, regardless of whether we name him or not. Of a friend who came to faith, came to Jesus later in life and said it was like coming to a home that I never knew I had. There was something in them that made it a return. But this word return captures something more for us, I think, as well. When Hosea is calling the people of Israel, when he's calling them to this return, to this posture, to lives that reflect it with integrity, lives of justice and steadfast love. Hosea's point, of course, is that you can't adopt a posture of defendance before God and then oppress your neighbor. These contradict one another. But when he makes this call, he's not thinking up something new. He's not developing this new thought. He's making this call in clear continuity with all that has come before him, with all that the people of God know. Hosea's ideas about what devotion to, dependence upon the Lord look like, his ideas that it's something that requires this integrity in worship and in the whole of life, aren't new to him. They're not something he invented. They're rooted in Israel's history, in its law, in the scriptures that Israel had. He's explicating them, explaining them in this new context, new moment, but he's doing so in continuity with what what has come before. He's not calling people to a new way of being, but to something ancient. He's calling them to return. This is the same thing that Jesus does. Jesus does something never before done, of course. The kingdom of heaven is brought near in this new, radical way into our world, our present. The status quo is upset. But he does that in continuity with what has come before. He points to the law and prophets. He points back into history. Just the other week, the church calendar celebrated the transfiguration, and it's this moment where Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, are there with Jesus. This suggestion of continuity. He interprets these faithfully. He embodies them in ways that we had never before seen. But he stands in continuity with what has come before. And in many ways, Jesus too calls us as people to return. This is what the early church did when they devoted themselves to the prayers, to the apostles' teachings as described in Acts 2. It's what we see explained in our reading today from Hebrews 11 and 12. This is what the church has done throughout ages for renewal and flourishing. Returning to the word of God spoken and seeking to stand in fresh ways in continuity with it. We can't adopt this posture, this posture of dependence upon God, without holding to, returning to, core convictions about who He is, who we are, and about reality. 
Hosea's convictions about God that he's eager to forgive, that he's loving, loves freely, that he has mercy, that he's the creator of all things, that he's a just judge. All of these convictions form the basis for his call to return. The way ahead is to go back in some way, not to a point in time, but to this set of claims captured in Scripture, claims that are ancient, more ancient than what we may have been given even decades ago. To paraphrase our dear Dr. Brown from Back to the Future, we do have to go back. We have to return that we might then enter into God's flourishing for today and tomorrow. Back to the future. I know that in the midst of our current cultural moment, there's a temptation to assume that the answers to our most fundamental questions are going to be new ones. The temptation to consider that any action or returning is in fact a dead end. To hear any call to return as nostalgic for something nostalgic for something bankrupt and lifeless. And I'll admit to you how the core convictions of the apostles' teaching, how the core claims of what Hosea pointed to and pointed back to, how the claims of the Nicene Creed match up with our problems, our questions today is not a simple thing to discern. Questions of sexuality, of intractable division politically, ethnically. Questions of technological advancement. Questions of what it means to be human today. Questions of justice and financial inequality and equity. I don't know how it all goes together. But what we as the church, as Church of the Cross, are called to, are seeking to do as an act of trust in Jesus who stands in continuity with this ancient story is hold fast to the truth, the truth of what he claimed about himself, about reality, about creation. And we're seeking to hold. Hold to what the earliest witnesses around him had to say about who he was, about what he taught, and hold to that teaching we've been given to return and return again and not let go. And to do that authentically, in connection with the world around us. Understanding, seeking to understand how this ancient story brings life today. But to return. To return to this story. The core conviction behind all of this is that life flourishing a future for us will be found here in postures of dependence before the Lord. At the foot of the cross, at the foot of Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. Because it's there where we find mercy. It's there where we meet one who heals and loves freely. It's there that we meet one who makes us to flourish like the verdant forest, who makes us blossom and bear fruit. The picture there in verses 4 to 7 of our reading is, of course, a picture of the end, the hope of things to come, the hope of a future, the hope of a final and complete returning and reunion with God. But already now in Jesus, that future, that hope is being made real here and now. And as we come to him in dependence, having stumbled, in the very posture of one who has stumbled, he heals our waywardness. He heals our 
prone to wander hearts, our desire to fight for what we don't really want. He makes it so that we can today and tomorrow walk in his ways. He makes us strong out of weakness that we might walk in his ways, ways that are right and true, that lead to flourishing, ours and others. He makes it so we can walk as a people returned to him. This is the how of our returning, in Christ, in Jesus alone. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you cannot return you will remain stumbled. Apart from me, you cannot enter into life as you long it to be. You cannot flourish. You cannot enter into God's flourishing future. But with me, he says, with me, the true vine, you can have this life. You can enter into the future of flourishing God has for us. In him, we can return. Let's do it again today. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, at the end of this series in Hosea, we confess that this is a challenging, challenging word. It's confusing even at points, O Lord. But we hear in it, we hear in it by the power of your Holy Spirit, this call to yourself, this call to return. We praise you, Jesus, for how you have made a way for us a way for us to return. You have redeemed us, O Lord, from our sins by your death upon the cross. And even more than that, now, even now, by your Holy Spirit, you are remaking us. You are working in our hearts. You are working in our lives. You are making us new, doing the impossible, so that we might walk in your ways, that we might return, that we might wait for you, O Lord. And I pray for each and every one of us here this day that you would continue and deepen this work among us. And for those of us who are discouraged, who, who might have a sense of not seeing this work at done, being done, would you give us a glimpse, a taste, O oh Lord, of the ways you are making us new? In your name we pray. Amen.